Hey, when does the show start? Hey, wait a minute. <gasps> First, let's hear from our sponsors. Oh, okay. In just a minute. Look, do you need a defense attorney? Go with the best in the business. That is Aurora Law Firm. You hear Manny Aurora on the show a couple times a month, currently representing Anna Delvey, the real one from the Inventing Anna Netflix documentary. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, but practices nationwide, has handled litigation in over 19 different states and has represented many clients uh, in the celebrity field, you know, as well as professional athletes, law enforcement agents, lawyers, uh, politicians, you name it, Manny and his crew have been there and done that. And they can help you as well if you're in need of a defense attorney. As a former prosecutor, Manny Aurora understands the other side of the case. TheAuroraLawFirm.com. That's the website, TheAuroraLawFirm.com. If you have a question for Manny when he makes a stop with the BS, you can leave a message on our hotline, 404 404- 369-3825 or the show's social media and get all that information off podcastthebs.com. How would you like your monthly mortgage payment taken care of for all of 2023? Well, after Stockton Mortgage's Dave Flashner's tip of the day, you'll find out. Rising interest rates is obviously a big topic. I always say, marry the home, date the rate. Meaning, you can't change the sales price but you can always refinance. When you close your home loan purchase or refinance with Stockton Mortgage, you'll be automatically entered into a mortgage-free sweepstakes. One prize winner will be chosen to have Stockton Mortgage cover their monthly mortgage payment up to $2,500 per month in 2023. A home loan or refinance might be one of the most important transactions you'll ever make in your life. Go with someone that's reliable, knowledgeable, trustworthy, and always on call. Dave Flashner, Stockton Mortgage, 561-951-0984. That's 561-951-0984. Stockton.com slash Dave dash Flashner. Look, my wife sells houses for a living, and she always tells her clients that are selling their house, if you want to upgrade your property value, you got to do something with the kitchen and or the bath. And you don't have to be selling your house to upgrade the kitchen and bath. It's just something nice to do, and it upgrades the property value tremendously. That's why I'm telling you about UCI Kitchen and Bath, which has been Atlanta's number one cabinet, granite, and quartz fabricator, plus installer for the past 20 years, servicing all of Georgia, parts of Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida. It is a one-stop shop for you. You can pop into their showroom in Norcross, Georgia, and you can see their design team, meet their design team, and watch how they'll transform your kitchen and bathroom into this beautiful and functional environment to fit your personality, right? Uh, Plus all the latest trends. They've got displays there. So it might give you some good ideas. It's a one-stop shop. As I said, UCI Kitchen and Bath also provides installation, whatever you buy. Let's save you some cash. Mention the BS, you get 10% off regular-priced countertops. So save some money. Mention the Bailey Show podcast, 10% off Regular price countertops. UCIGranite.com. I love people. All right, all right, all right. The BS presents Let's Talk To. People are strange when you're a stranger. I cannot wait to see who it is. Oh, I hope it's Frank Sinatra's ghost. Oh, PodcastTheBS.com. It's better than radio. You might not ever hear from a more motivational individual with a compelling story than our guest right now, Damon West. He's got a new book. 
He's got a lot of books, but a new one called The Locker Room. Uh, he's a motivational speaker and an author, but more importantly, you're not going to find this on the internet as far as on his resume. He's an amazing storyteller, and I love storytellers, and his story is real. Uh, and if it does not uplift you, something wrong with you. Uh, DamonWest.org is his website, but a lot of professional coaches on the college level, professional level, have Damon come in and share their story to the younger guys uh, because it's all about adversity. And if there's a guy that knows about adversity, Damon, my friend, it is you. Yes, sir. Hey, Jason, thanks a lot for having me on, man. Thanks for y'all taking your time to spend with me this morning and let me come on here and talk about how to turn adversity into opportunity because that is what my story is all about and and the basis of the coffee bean in the middle of it shows people that if i could do it in the situation that i was in and we'll talk about where that place was that i had to do this this giant pot of boiling water i was in if i could do it inside that pot of boiling water then you can do it out here too so this is impossible the story of the coffee bean and if you google damon west and you go to his youtube uh, channel that's that's the basis of all this and you know, going back to the beginning, you were a college uh, football quarterback at North Texas. You got into some trouble. And like you said, we'll get into all that. Um, and then you go to jail and that's when your life changes. So go to college and walk us through how you got into the bad way. Yeah. So look, I grew up in, 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 in Port Arthur, Texas, a little, a little blue collar town, a little refinery town in Southeast Texas. And I had every advantage, every privilege, every opportunity. I was, uh, you know, I didn't come from a broken home, had two great parents. My parents just celebrated 54 years being married. So I had a great foundation, great core values. And in and, and corporations and sports teams, we all want to talk about core values. I had those core values, man, growing up. And I was a great athlete. So I got to play Division One college football at the University of North Texas. And by the time I was 20, I was a starting quarterback for a D1 team. And man, I thought I had arrived. My head was this big. But life has a way of giving you these days that I call fork in the road days. And we all know those fork in the road days, days that life knocks you down. You get back up, you dust yourself off, you look up, and the world looks different. But you're going to make a choice on those pivotal days. Make the right choice and go the right way, the wrong choice and go the wrong direction. September 21st, 96, we're playing against Texas A&M. It's a beautiful Saturday in College Station. I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm driving my team downfield. But on the third play of that game, I go down with a career and an injury. And I never played college football again. And when I get up to this fork in the road in life and football is gone, that's when I start making a lot of wrong choices because my identity was wrapped up in being a football player. And that's a big mistake that I think a lot of people make. And I made it. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. Back then in my younger, more immature self, my identity was wrapped up into something external. Big mistake. Because I learned as, as life went on, your identity has to come from within. But when that happened and my identity was gone as a football player, I got into hardcore drugs, cocaine, ecstasy pills. But I was functional. I was a functional addict. I graduated college in 1999. I moved to Washington, D.C. I got a job working in the United States Congress. I worked for a guy running for president of the United States. In 2004, I moved back to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. But it was at that job as a stockbroker in 2004 that I came up to another fork in the road in life. And it was the day that another, another stockbroker saw me sleeping at work and said, hey, you can't sleep on this job. The markets are open. You're messing with people's money. They'll fire you for sleeping here. So he, he said, come on down to the parking garage. I got something that's going to pick you up. And that day was the first day that I ever tried methamphetamines. And I'm going to tell you something. That drug is the most evil, 
most destructive, most addictive drug ever created by man. I smoked it one time and I was instantly hooked just like that. And within 18 months of that first hit of meth, I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. Man, I'm homeless. I'm living in people's cars, living in dope houses. And then I start committing crimes to fund my addiction, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units, and eventually I started breaking into people's homes, Jason. Did, did you ever, you know, I always wonder people that are addicted to meth, and when we had the radio show, this would come up from time to time with news stories. You know, there's certain status... Uh, status is put on drugs. Like if somebody is doing Coke, you're like, ah, they probably got some money. They're a party person. But you think of meth, you think of lower tier, lower income, lower intellect, which you're none of those things. And, and, and like you go, I'm now addicted to meth. Did you know you were addicted to it? And did you feel dirty and guilty because it's such a low tier drug? Yeah, man. So that's, it's, it's a very good question you asked. And not, not many people have ever asked that. And, and in my book, The Change Agent, I talk about this because my little brother at the time was addicted to, to meth and, and, and he brought it around me and I wouldn't touch the stuff, Jason, because I was into cocaine. You know, in 2004, going yeah. into that, I was still doing blow because that's, uh, you know, that's a rich man's drug. Right. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even do any coke without a hundred, you know, without using a hundred dollar bill. I didn't even want to use a dollar bill because everybody touches dollar bills. Right. <laughs> Not everybody touches a hundred. Right. right. But, so when I see meth for the first time around my little brother, I'm like, man, what is that white trash drug? And he, and he kept he was telling me, you don't know what you're talking about. This is ice. This is different than what you're thinking about some kind of biker dope. But I wouldn't touch it. I was a classist when it came to drugs. Right. Yeah. If you can call such a thing. And that stockbroker that handed me that glass pipe for that first time in 2004, I gave him the same, like, man, what is that white trash drug? And he laughed at me. He said, dude, the stuff you're doing is low grade. That, that cocaine stuff you're doing is like, you know, that's nothing compared to what this is. And he told me what the price per gram was. And you know what? Honestly, it's almost like when he tells me that it's not as low class, it was almost a permission statement for me to go ahead and do it. That was the only barrier, as stupid as that sounds, the only barrier for me to try meth, because I was into all kinds of stuff, was the fact that it was a low class drug. But once I got hooked on that stuff and I saw the power of it, man, there was no turning back. I couldn't stop. I felt like I could stop. That's the world of addiction though, man. I tell people all the time, addicts aren't necessarily bad people. They're sick people that do a lot of bad things. They're suffering from a disease of addiction and addicts will do anything to get our high. It will give everything away. You can't steal from an addict. We give it away, man. My job, my home, my car, my savings account, my tethering to God, I gave it all away, brother. Wow. And, and, and so at what point, you know, timeline wise, how much time has gone by and at what point do you get arrested and I believe you get handed a life sentence, right? Yeah. So July, man. So this is 2004, the first time I try it. And uh, within within 18 months, I'm homeless. And then I start committing crimes to fund my addiction. And I start breaking into to people's cars, storage units, to people's houses. Then I put together my own burglary crew. And this burglary crew, we committed a bunch of burglaries. They called them the Uptown Burglaries. The Uptown Burglaries for the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas that we committed them in. And look, let's... Let's take a second to talk about my victims here because my victims paid the biggest price for this story, right? They, they didn't, I didn't just steal, I didn't just steal their, their property when I broke into their homes. My victims, I stole their sense of security and I don't know if they'll ever get that back. Uh, some of them will live with that for the rest of their lives. But these burglaries went on for three years. And on July 30th, 2008, I'm sitting around this little rundown apartment in Dallas. I've got my meth dealer, it's got him text. And my life is in shambles at this point, man. I'm living like uh, uh, just a, a meth addict on the streets, committing crimes. Everything around my life is about crime. 
And I'm sitting there smoking this pipe with Tex, passing it back and forth. And I'm telling Tex, Tex, I think the end is near. I think the cops are coming to get me. Ten days before this, this guy that I was doing all these burglaries with in Dallas, this guy named Dustin, had been picked up by the Dallas Police Department in a stolen car. So they got my partner in crime in custody. I know it's just a matter of time before they get to me. And, man, just as I pass this pipe back to Tex, the window on my right blows out and shatters. And then tumbling across my living room floor is this little canister going end over end and smoking on one side. Y'all, man, I've seen this movie before. I know that canister, and I know what it's about to do. Yeah. And I tried to get out of that living room as fast as I could. Too late. Boom! The flashbang grenade blows up right in my face. Bright white light, loud noise, blows me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, there's a cop standing over me in full SWAT riot gear, his boot on my chest, the barrel of an assault rifle digging in my eye socket, his fingers on the trigger, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, don't move, don't move. Man, I look at this cop, and I'm like, man, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. So they take me to jail in Dallas. They take me to jail in Dallas <laughs> County Jail. And they set my bond. My bond is at $1.4 million. $1.4 million, y'all. That's a no bond. You can't make a bond that high. So I waited for the next 10 months for my day in court because I thought in my addict brain that I would go to trial and I would get probation. I've never had a felony conviction. This is my first time in trouble. These crimes, Jason, are non-aggravated, meaning that no one was ever home. I never saw my victims. They never saw me. No one got physically hurt. So it's property crimes where I'm meth. I'm going to get probation, right? Man, 10 months later, I'm standing in front of a jury, May 18th, 2009. I'm standing in front of this jury in Dallas. And man, these 12 men and women in this jury box, they have just listened to six days, six days of overwhelming evidence of my guilt, of the crime of engaging in organized criminal activity. They got me for organized crime, y'all. And at the end of that six-day trial, the jury went to deliberate for 10 minutes wow. on my sentence show. Yeah, 10 minutes, man. I don't know how much law and order you watch, Jason. A lot. But if, yeah, <laughs> if a jury's gone for 10 minutes, man, they smoked you. Yeah. Man, I came back in the courtroom, and, and my, my, I had two attorneys, two paid attorneys. This is how much I'm telling you. I didn't think I was going to prison. I, think I, I thought I was going home that day. And, man, my second chair counsel, Karen Lambert, I'll never forget. She said, get ready. It's going to be bad. And I'm like, how bad, Karen? She said, well, you were gone for that brief 10 minutes. The jury sent a note into the judge. They wanted to know if they could give you life without parole. Oh, man. Dude, life without parole is a capital. I'm like, that's a capital punishment. These aren't capital crimes. Capital is when someone dies in the commission of a crime. These aren't capital crimes. No one got hurt. She said, get ready. And the judge came in. And he, was, he had smiled the entire trial. He's grinning from now from ear to ear. And he says, Damon Joseph West, you are hereby sentenced to 65 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Jason, wow. 65 years in Texas is a life sentence, dude. That's yeah. a, the maximum they can give you is 60. I mean, juries get to give people 85 or 99 of the word life. It all means 60 because 60 on top of the 17 you have to be to go to prison is a natural lifespan of a human being. 60 is life. They gave me life that day, Jason. Why, why do you think you got such a harsh sentence? Because I agree the, the sentence does not fit the crime. Yeah, so in America, and I can tell you this from, a, from the educational side of it too, because since I got out of prison six and a half years ago, I went back to school, I got a master's in criminal justice, and today, today I'm a professor at the University of Houston downtown. Uh -huh. I, teach a, I teach a class at University of Houston called Prisons in America. I'm the only professor in the world that teaches a prisons class that lived in a prison, right? <laughs> so I'm on the academic side of it. I can tell you what I think the answer to that question is, is that in America, in America, we sentence people for two reasons in our criminal justice system. One, if we're scared of somebody. And two, if we're mad at somebody. 
and the jury was mad at me. They were angry, man. They saw this guy that had everything going for him in life, every advantage, every privilege, every opportunity. And I'm sure those men and women in that jury box thought, man, if I just had, you know, a little bit of what you had in life, you know, and you go and you become a meth addict. And, and the, the, the trial, the trial was, I mean, it was just overwhelming, Jason. I mean, they had me dead to rights. And there I was, this smug, arrogant guy that thought he was getting out of there. The evidence, man, some of the evidence they listened to at that trial, the jury, the jury hated my guts and I gave them the reason to hate me. And I'm tell you why. Because they played some of those jailhouse recordings. Those phones that you call from in jail, mm-hmm. they record all those conversations. When I got to when I got to jail, I was trying to get out. Man, I got on the phone. I called people from the dope world, the criminal world. I'm having a fundraiser. I'm like Jerry Lewis having a telethon on those phones, and they're recording every minute of it. I'm telling people, hey, you owe me 10 grand for this hit, this job, whatever. And they start putting up the evidence. And when I go to trial, they're playing back those recordings for the jury. And the jury's hearing a guy that's calling in, barking these orders out to people. That's why it's organized crime. Wow. That this guy is the ringleader of everybody. But what the, 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 the prosecutor did, it was pretty clever, is the prosecutor managed to keep out the stuff around me doing the drugs. The whole trial was about a bunch of meth addicts breaking into houses. But they tried to keep out the fact, and they did a good job, that I was one of them too. I didn't have anything to show for it. At the end of this whole crime spree, I didn't have anything to show for it. I didn't have cars. I didn't have jets. I didn't have yachts. I was a dope fiend living in in a dope house when they came to get me that day on July 30th, 2008. So the jury saw a guy that took all of his talents in life and ran an organized crime ring. And they're like, okay, well, we got a punishment for you. And and the part of the part of town that I was burglarizing in Dallas, I mean, let's face it, it's the nicest part of Dallas that was being victimized. And I was the guy doing it. What do you, so what do you, what do you do in a dope house with meth? Like you sit around with your meth buddies, you do meth and then you take a nap. Like, what do you do? You're not taking naps, brother. <laughs> you're not taking not for naps. days. <laughs> nah, yeah. You're up for a little while. Yeah. I'm a man. Got it down there. Right. Uh, <laughs> in these houses in my book, the change agent, I talk about what goes on in these stuff. I mean, like you'll have different rooms. This is like, I, I tell people all the time, the theft and meth go together like rats and trash. That's an axiom. You can take that to the bank. Meth is an insidious drug, and people get on this drug. And, and first of all, you're on it. We're unemployable. I say we're because I'm an addict still. I'm in. I'm in recovery today. I'm in AA. I go to my meetings all the time. I have a sponsor. I'll do that the rest of my life. But when I was in my addiction, addicts on meth, man, in one room there'll be people doing the drug, and in another room there's people, you know, going through mail that they've stolen because they're doing identity theft in that room, you know. In another room, they're 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 creating accounts or they're making checks. They're doing all kinds of. This is just nothing but a crime ring going on around meth. And this is just meth dens all over America, you know. So much of what you see with with identity theft and, and property crimes and theft is around that drug of meth, man. Meth is the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug. Well, it wasn't until you go into jail that you get the wake-up call of all wake-up calls. And that's because of a gentleman by the name of Mr. Jackson, right? Yes. And Mr. Jackson tells you a story that changes the game for you and now has changed the game for a lot of people because that's what the coffee bean is all about. Absolutely. So the day I got sentenced to life, right after the trial was over, they, they, they slapped the cuffs on me. They dragged me out of the courtroom. I lock eyes with my mom on the way out. I'm like, Mom, I'm sorry. They're dragging me out of there. They put me in this little side room. It's got a bulletproof glass. They told me to wait. 
And then a few minutes later, my mom and my dad were escorted into the other side of that glass. They decided to give my parents one last visit with me before I go to prison. And they feel sorry for my parents. I just got life right in front of their eyes. So my mom and my dad come in. My dad can't talk. He's in stunned disbelief that his son, with all this promise in life, just got a life sentence in prison. So my mom does all the talking. And she says, baby, she said, debts in life demand to be paid. And you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. She said, but you did the things they said you did at that trial. So you're going to have to go and pay that debt to society. You owe Texas that debt. But you owe your father and I a debt, too. She said, we gave you all the opportunity, love and support to be anything you want to be in life. And this is the life you chose. And she said, that won't work. She said, so here's the debt you're going to pay to us. When you go to prison, you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs, because you're scared because you're the minority in there. She said, it's not going to work. You were never raised to be a racist, and you're not going to start now. And she said, you will not get any tattoos while you're inside that prison. And Jason, I mean, I came out almost 10 years in a maximum security. I did seven years and three months. No tattoos, man. And I mean, these guys want to tattoo every inch of your body in the joint. Maximum security level five, the highest security level there is for prison. And I'm in with the worst of the worst, man. These guys would hit me up all the time. West, let me put a tattoo on you, man. And every time, Jason, I tell them the same thing. Man, I can't do it, dude. My mom said no. <laughs> yeah, I really did, man. Because everybody respects a person's mother. Incidentally, the busiest, the busiest visitation day in prison is Mother's Day because everybody hmm. has a mom at some point. Not everybody had a father at some point, right? So Mother's Day was – so everybody respected a mom. That's what I would just tell those guys. I'd put it off my mom. I'm like, dude, I can't do it, man. My mom said no. So my mom is telling me that day, May 18, 2009, she said, no gangs, no tattoos. She said, you come back as the man we raised or don't come back to us at all. Hmm. It's like this giant ultimatum just laid down by my mom. And, man, I'm like – Okay, and, but I don't know how I'm gonna do this, man. I don't, I don't have a clue. I've never been to prison before. I'm a white middle class guy in America. I don't know. I don't know anybody's been to prison. So I got back to my pod in Dallas County Jail, and I'm asking all these guys that have been to prison before, how am I gonna survive? What am I gonna do? And every guy I talked to, man, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they said the same thing. You have to get into a gang. You won't survive without a gang. But there was this one guy, this older black man named Mr. Jackson, and, and Jackson. He's what you call a career criminal. The dude has been in and out of prison office like four or five times. But he's the most positive guy I've ever met, Jason. This guy had a smile on his face everywhere he went. You couldn't knock the smile off of Jackson's face. And so one morning, Jackson comes up to my cell, and uh, he's got a cup of coffee in his hands and a smile on his face. He said, West, he said, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies. Talk about you got to get into a gang. He said, don't listen to these fools. You want to keep that promise you made to your mom and your dad? Then I'm going to tell you what prison's really going to be like. So he said, the first thing you need to understand about prison. He said, prison is all about race. He said, race runs the whole institution because the inmates in there want it to be about race. He told me when you walk in the door, the life's in this building, they let you in the day room for the first time, you'll see a TV set in the day room. And in front of the TV set, they have rows of benches. He said, the first row of benches, you can't sit on that row. He said, that's for the blacks. You'll get your head smashed in. You sit on the blacks row. The second row, you can't sit on that row either. That's for the Hispanics. They'll smash your head in too. He said, the third row, if there's a third row, is where the white folks sit. And he said, if there's no third row, the white folks sit on the floor. He said, that's just the way the numbers work. He said, it's the opposite of the free world. You don't have the numbers like you have in the free world. The blacks do. He said, so when you walk in the door, the white gangs are going to get the first dibs on you because you are white. The Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the White Knights, the Woods. He said, you have to fight all the white prison gangs off if you want to have your independence from them. And he said, if you survive that and you don't give in to their ideology of hate out of fear, then get ready because the black gangs are coming out. The Crips, the Bloods, the Gangster Disciples, the Mandingo Warriors, 
they're all going to be happy to tee off on an independent white guy that won't get with his own race, his own kind. He said, but if you survive that and you can survive all that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. And that's when he told me, he said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of warm water. And he said, anything we put to that pot of warm water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in that pot of warm water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. So, Jason, here's where I first heard the story of the coffee bean in the summer of 2009 in Dallas County Jail. So he said, first things first, Wes. He said, if I put a carrot in that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, what happens with the carrot? Now, like Mr. Jackson, the, the carrot's going to turn soft. He said, that's right. He said, but the carrot went in the water hard, but the water, the prison, turned the hard carrot soft and mushy and weak. The carrot got beat. He got robbed. May have gotten raped. May have gotten killed. You don't want to be the carrot inside the prison. He said, what about the egg? What happened to the egg in the pot of boiling water called prison? Now, like Mr. Jackson, well, the egg will turn hard, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right, Wes. He said, the egg has a shell that protects it physically, but inside that shell, that soft, liquid core, the egg's heart becomes hardened. He said, if your heart becomes hardened, now you're incapable of giving or receiving love. And he said, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love, you become institutionalized, and you will not come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell will have swastikas tattooed all over it. Then he asked me, he said, what about the coffee bean? He said, what happened to the coffee bean and the pot of blown water we call prison? And Jason, I didn't have an answer for this dude that day. I didn't know what happened to a coffee bean and a pot of blown water. And that's when Mr. Jackson, a man that looked nothing like me, didn't come from the same part of America that I came from, didn't believe the same things I believed in life fundamentally or spiritually. This is a black Muslim man from the streets of Dallas, Texas, man. I'm a white Catholic guy from a little bitty town called Port Arthur, Texas. But this guy so different than me shared with me one of the most important and transformational messages I've ever received in my life. And I tell people all the time, the lesson there is this. If you ever shut yourself off to people because of their differences, different race, different gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, if you close yourself off to people because of their differences, you're going to miss some of the most important lessons and some of the best friendships in this life. Because Mr. Jackson told me that day, he said, if I put a coffee bean in that same pot of warm water we call prison, he said, now you're going to change the name of that water, the coffee. Because he said the coffee bean, West, the smallest of the three things, he said, small like you, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot because the power was inside the coffee bean. He said, just like the power is inside of you. And the last four words this man ever said to me in Dallas County Jail before I go to prison, he said, West, go out there. And go be a coffee bean. That's, be a coffee bean, Jason. That's it. You know, and when I when when we first got booked to have you on, Dave, and I was, you know, I'm doing the research, and all I'm seeing, I'm reading. I'm not at the, the time I didn't see any video. I'm reading about this coffee bean. I'm like, what the hell does this coffee bean have to do with anything? Like, who who is this guy? What is this story? And then I start seeing the videos on your YouTube channel, and you got Dabo Sweeney, you got Nick Saban, you got. You know, uh, I think Jimbo Fisher was, I mean, you got all these, you know, high profile collegiate uh, coaches. They're talking about this coffee bean thing. I'm still trying to find out what the coffee bean is about. And then I hear a, I watch a video of you tell the story like you just told on our show. And I love motivational stuff. That is probably, if not the best story I've ever heard. Just that in itself, how you heard it, who you heard it from, and the message that it delivers. 
that speaks volumes. I think that's why you're able to transcend your story to young people, especially struggling young people in athletics. And I'm sure you've helped out thousands and thousands, right? Yeah, you know, and it's 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 the idea that the, the coffee bean is a concept that anybody can understand, whether you're five years old or 95 years old, that life is this giant pot of boiling water, not just prison, like Mr. Jackson told me, but life. Life is going to be hard. Life's going to be stressful. It's going to be a dangerous place sometimes. It's going to be hard, difficult choices that you have to face. But you've got three options in life. You can be like the carrot that turns soft and sad and weak, and guess what? You're going to be the carrot. Everybody's going to be the carrot sometimes. That's being sad. Being sad is a natural human emotion. It's okay to be the carrot, Jason. Just don't get stuck there. Yeah. Then there's going to be those days that beat you down and make you hard and mad and mean and angry, and everybody everybody pisses you off. Those are egg days. And if you're anything like me, you get a lot more egg days than carrot. I got a lot more egg days under my belt than carrot days, man. You're going to be the egg sometimes. Being angry is a natural human emotion. But you can't get stuck there. Because you do have a third choice. Everybody, we've all got this third choice. And it was that third choice that I took with me inside that maximum security level five prison. The hottest pot of boiling water there is. Because, Jason, I'm going to tell you, man, I talk to people all over the world. People tell me all the time their biggest fear in life is to have to go to prison. And there's a reason why. There's a difference between fear and danger. I tell people all the time, fears aren't real. That's how you perceive a situation. That's an emotion you feel towards a situation. Danger is real, though. You have to respect danger. And prison is dangerous, especially the level of prison that I had to go into. But I chose to be a coffee bean inside that prison. And, I, and, and it took a long time. It took battling after battle, and not just physical battle, spiritual battle, mental battle, to become the person I am today. The person I am today was formed inside of that hot pot of boiling water called prison. But it's the whole concept, like I said before, you've got that third choice. And if I could do it in there, then you can do it out here. Because we all have the choice to choose to be like that coffee bean. You know what a coffee bean does on a carrot day or egg day? Stops the day and starts it over, man. You can stop your day anytime you want, man. I, man, I start my days over all the time. Nine o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock at night. Take a step back, take a deep breath, and man, say it out loud. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself, man, I'm not going to be the carrot. I'm not going to be the egg. And then jump back in your pot of boiling water called life. You tell life, you know what? Turn it up. I got this. I'm a coffee bean. And the longer the coffee bean sits in the pot of warm water called life, the stronger the pot of coffee is going to be. And my life is a testament to that, man. Jason, man, Dabo Swinney, the first coach in America to really put me on with all these other coaches, he heard the coffee bean story for the first time and calls Nick Saban. He calls all these other coaches up. But then he calls a guy named John Gordon. You know, John Gordon is his friend, comes in to speak to the team. John calls me up one day because Dabo gives him my number. And John is a huge motivational speaker and author. And this man, I mean, he's sold 5 million books. John's huge. And John's like, listen, man, the world needs this coffee bean message. But this is right before the pandemic. He said, the world needs the coffee bean message. Let's write a book. We'll call it the coffee bean. I mean, he said, this is one of the best messages I've ever heard wrapped up with your story. He said, the world needs this message. And that's really how I came to be because of Dabo Swinney and John Gordon. Wow. I did not know that. So so you talked about, you know, obviously you're out of prison now. You've been out for, you know, a few years, as you just mentioned, but you were sentenced to 65. Um, so how does Damon West get sentenced to 65 years and only serve, what, a sixth of that? So here's the deal. In Texas prisons, they have crimes that are aggravated and they have crimes that are non-aggravated. Aggravated crimes are crimes where people are physically hurt. These are crimes where there's a physical victim, you know, people that are murderers rapists, child molesters, you know, people that have assaulted other people. Those have a physical victim. My crimes, 
don't have a physical victim. Their property crimes are on meth. So here's the deal that Texas says. If you have an aggravated crime or there's a physical victim, you have to do half of your sentence before you're eligible for parole. So half of 65 would be, well, have it's 60. Everything stops at 60 on calculation. So if it were to have been aggravated crimes, which they weren't, aggravated criminals have to do 30 years with a 60 before they even see parole. But because mine was non-aggravated, because I didn't physically hurt anybody, I had to do 25% of my time before I saw parole. 25% of 60 is 15. But because I was a non-aggravated offender, I have access to good time and work time. Good time works like this. For every day that you're in prison and you follow the rules, you don't get in any trouble, you get an extra day, one for one. Hmm. And for every day that you're there and you're willing to work because inmates really do run the asylum inside of prison. Every day that you're there and you're willing to work, the state gives you half a day credit. So when I got to six years of calendar time, real days, six years of full day for day, I had another six years of good time because I didn't get any trouble. And then I had another three years of work time. That makes 15. So at six years, I became eligible for parole. And when the parole board finally came around to see me, seven years and three months is when my number finally came up for the first time, I was eligible for parole. But did I think I was going to make parole? Hell no. I didn't think I was going to make parole. Not my first time. I mean, I think I'm going to probably pull a dime, maybe 15 on this life sentence like everybody else does that has life. You know, no one makes it out in their first time. But it was, I remember it was 2015. I was in prison. I was working in the chapel. It's a chapel clerk. And, and the chaplain came in. He was really excited that day. He's like, West. He said, security is looking all over for you. They're calling your name on the radio. He said, the parole board is here to see you. Now, Jason, look, I know I'm up for parole, man, but I'm trying to manage my expectations about this because I don't want to get excited about something I don't think is going to happen. And, um, but I went to the parole office anyway. I had a smile on my face. I'm standing there from the lady for parole, and the lady for parole calls me in, and she said, uh, she said, Mr. West, I came here to ask you one question today. And she said, the answer to my question is not the criminal file. And she's got my file open in front of her about that thick. She said, the answer to my question is not in the file about the guy that I'm reading about right there that committed those crimes. She said, we don't see a lot of people like Damon West come to the state prison system because she said, honestly, she said, you had every advantage in life. She said, we don't see people like you. You had everything going for you, every advantage, every privilege, every opportunity. But you managed to blow through all of that, become a drug addict, a criminal, and a thief. And she said, a jury in Dallas, they gave you life in prison for the things you did. She said, but instead of letting that license define you, she said, you came to this prison, this prison in particular, and the prison I was in is one of the toughest prisons in America. And remember, I teach about prisons in America. I can tell you about tough prisons. This one I'm in, Styles, is one of the toughest there is. And she said, you came to this prison, and you didn't just change yourself, because there's no doubt you changed yourself. You changed this prison. She said, you changed the entire prison around you. One man changed an entire prison. She said, so my question for you is this. She said, if you could be remembered for being anything in life, anything at all, she said, I want you to tell me what that would be in just one word, go. Oh, man, I breathed out and relaxed, Jason. That's an easy question for a coffee bean. Man, I fired her answer back at her real quick, and I was like, ma'am, useful. I just want to be useful, and I can be useful in this prison, or I can be useful in the free world finding more coffee beans. And on November 16, 2015, Jason, I walked out of a Texas prison. I'm not necessarily free, though, when I walk out. I understand this, right, because I'm on parole. Get this. I'm on parole until the year 2073. Wow. 2070. Every month I see my parole officer. I pee in the cup. 
I answer every question they ask. If I want to leave the state of Texas or the country, I've got to get a, I get a permission slip. I sign a waiver of extradition every time I step out of the Texas borders. And I travel outside of Texas probably 10 or 12 times a month. But I'm not worried about parole because I'm a coffee bean, Jason. And, and as long as I'm a coffee bean, man, the only way this coffee bean goes to prison is when I walk into prisons all over America. I share this story with the men and women in there to bring them hope on their journey. And I walk back out the front gate of every prison I go into this day, man. What was the first thing you had coffee. to What was the first thing you had to eat when you got out? Man, great question. Whataburger. Y'all have water burger. Now, <laughs> Texas, no, in, in Mexico, they don't have water burgers down there, brother. I feel sorry for you, bro. That is no. But Whataburger is yeah. man, I've been dreaming about a number two what a size with cheese for seven years, three months, <laughs> and eighteen days, man. <laughs> Day one out of prison. I got my Whataburger. It's a Texas thing, man. The, the people that live in Texas are addicted to Whataburgers. So good. It's it's crazy. Patrick Mahomes actually he got you know to playing for Kansas City and he they didn't have any Whataburgers out there and I think he's got like fourteen Whataburger franchises <laughs> now in the Kansas City area. I mean, <laughs> they didn't have it, so he brought it there. Did you did you ever think about you know escaping before you met Mr. Jackson and you know even when you went in there I'm sure you were a little cloudy and going I can't do life in jail i'm gonna escape no no i never thought about escaping i'm gonna tell you why because i understood the parole time chart and uh, inmates in there you know they call it the inmate information network kind of like the the World Wide web and and inmates can tell you a lot of stuff about the system because they've been in the system all their lives and everybody around you is adept to it and so i know the time chart i know that if i follow all the rules i do everything i'm supposed to i'm eligible for parole at six years won't make it, but I know that if I keep doing the next right thing, that I'm going to become parole eligible and probably get out of prison a lot sooner than most of the guys around me. And that was a crazy part of where I lived, where I lived in prison, this part of prison I lived in with the life sentence people, because I'm life, I'm classified with the lifers. I've got to live with the worst of the worst. The neighborhood I live in, man, child molesters, murderers, rapists, violent criminals. These are my neighbors, man. This is like the neighborhood I live in. The people I'm around, 98% 98% of the people, I've, there's a building called Seven Building that I lived on when I first got to prison. Seven Building housed everybody that has a life sentence fresh out of county jail. And you have to live on Seven Building for a certain amount of time before you can even live in a different part of the prison because of the escape risk, right? And you don't leave Seven Building. It's like a giant island you go to where it's like Lord of the Flies. And on Seven Building, all these lifers, probably 98% of them, 95%, have aggravated life sentences. That means your neighbors, the most, the most recent person that's going to see parole next to you sees parole in 30 years, three decades. I lived on one pod, Jason, in prison. There's 48 men in a pod. The building has like 450 people on it. But on my pod, there's 48 people. And on a pod of 48 people, 12 of those people had life without parole. Life without parole. These are people that never are going to see parole. They are nuclear bombs that you cannot get around because if these people decide to blow up one day, that's it. They're taking everybody with them. These are dangerous people. And man, I'm, I'm in there. I'm, I'm living in prison and I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is a dangerous place to be, but if I can do the next right thing, I got a letter. I'll never forget this letter that I got. In 2011, I was in prison doing my time and I've been working on myself at this point. I, I got into recovery and I'm working on being a coffee bean but I got some motivation that was mailed to me. My favorite teacher, Mr. Jellin, reached out to me. Mr. Jellin was my seventh grade history teacher. And I get this letter from him in September of 2000. The date on the letter, I can almost see it's like September 2nd or 3rd, 2011. And, and my favorite teacher writes me. He says, Damon, 
you've been to the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. And, and But he said, I believe you'll bounce back because you've always been a leader. And he said those four words to me that everyone needs to hear from another human being. He said, I believe in you. Hold up. Wait a minute. Let's hear from our sponsors. Watkins Law Firm, trial and litigation attorneys. So if it's personal injury, wrongful death, contracts and transactions, landlord and tenant disputes, or just general civil litigation, Watkins Law Firm dot LLC is where you need to go. Get a hold of Tyler Watkins, Watkins Law Firm dot LLC. And here's Tyler's tip of the day. Georgia really hates people cutting down other people's trees. If you cut down someone else's tree, whether you realize it or not, you're going to owe them three times the value of that tree and all of their attorney's fees and costs. And trust me, those can get expensive real quick. Get a hold of Tyler Watkins, WatkinsLawFirm.LLC, serving all of Georgia. Next time, talk to Tyler. In the market to build a mountain home or cabin in western North Carolina, Mac Development Group. These are the people that you need to call. These are the people you need to talk to. MacDevelopment.com is the website. Currently booking for full-time builds, and they're looking for you to get on the schedule today, providing a premium product in the Western Carolina market, and they are the premium builder in the area. Putting everything together in this amazing 3D software, the process is easy, and it's a one-stop shop with Mac Development Group. MacDevelopment.com. Because of YouTube percenters, Rockland Contracting is booked this year so make your appointment for next year today specializing in deck design and build basement remodel new hvac installation interior exterior painting you need david hawks and rockland contracting get all of them 678-879-3867 and make your appointment for next year plus if you've got any deck designed experience and or framing experience starting out at 20 dollars an hour i need your help rockland contracting llc.com 678-879-3867 help you help your business get to the next level and you do that by incorporating create graphics in there whether it's vehicle wraps corporate events you might be having interior exterior events graphic design and apparel create graphics is a full service graphics company that specializes in graphic design wide format printing and graphic installation excellent customer service where every project is going to get that one-on-one experience from start to finish creategraphics.net c-r-e-a-t-e-g-r-a-p-h-i-x.net or you can call 770-369-9962 770-369-9962 and back to you jason i believe in you and then he goes on to say he said, I think you should consider sharing your story with young people when you get out because your story can bring them hope on their journey and the lessons you've learned along the way can help them find their way in life. And man, Jason, I went to bed that night with that letter. You couldn't get between me and that letter because that letter had those four words in it, man. And that's when I started thinking inside that prison, if I was going to tell my story one day, what does that story look like? And, and am I writing the best chapters of that story right now? And that was the boost I needed in 2011 to really break free and become that coffee bean inside that prison. And that's the, the guy that parole saw, the guy that received that letter and, and became that coffee bean. That's, that's a seed that planted this forest of trees that is now this coffee bean movement that goes on all over the world. Jason, I mean, all of the, I'm going to London in a few weeks to speak to AIG's corporate office in London. I'm speaking to Parliament. I'm speaking to the House of Lords and House of Commons in like three weeks, July 5th, the day after our Independence Day. I'll be in London speaking to the House of Lords and House of Commons. They want to understand what the coffee bean is. Wow. That's amazing. It's wild. Man. Uh, Nate, you got a question for Damon. 
Yeah, I was just wondering. I've always thought, of, like, when people break into houses, that would be the most terrifying thing because you never know if somebody's going to come around the corner. How did you pick the houses? Were there, was there any method, or was it just kind of whatever house looked like nobody was home? Man, where did y'all do y'all's research for this podcast, man? Y'all are asking some really sharp questions, brother. All right, so huh, I'm not sure anybody's ever asked me this on, on camera, so let's go ahead and get – all right, I'm going to give you a little bit of this. All right. <laughs> Nate. I didn't even I didn't even put this in my book to change agent, but I'm going to tell you this, Nate, that right now I'm in the process of my story is going to become a limited series. In fact, Lionsgate is the studio that's involved. Dak Prescott is uh, started his own media company. He's my partner in this deal, and and um, we're about to start at the end of the month going to sh- to sell this to Netflix, Hulu, HBO, whoever wants to buy it. It's going to be an eight to ten episode limited series, and this is going to be in there. When I was a meth addict breaking into people's houses. You have this thing called this preservation of life instinct. And if you hold on to that thing, it'll help you navigate no matter where you are in life. And obviously I'm a math addict, so, but I'm not one to get caught. No one wants to get caught. And, and I'm not a dumbass either. So when I was going to break into people's houses, the last thing I want to do is go into someone's house that was home. That's like the, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to run into somebody. I'm not a violent person. I'm doing this because I want to get high, you know? Um, I'm an addict. And so I go to great lengths to make sure that no one's home. One of the things I did is I I broke into a a post office and stole a a mailman uniform. And I would go around dressed as a mailman and inside some of these condo buildings. And then that gives you access to the mailroom. And inside the mailroom and the slots in the mailroom are notes that say, hey, we'll be out of town from this date to this date. Hold our mail. And so that's the kind of places that you would look at to say, hey, you know what? This person's out of town. And if you find two or three of those in the same condo building the same weekend, then I would go get my box truck that I had. I had a box truck with, you know, it says movers on the side. I have a couple of dope fiends and and dicky overalls. And we're just loading up. People are holding doors for you in these buildings. So you look like you're supposed to be there. These people are not home and you know you're not going to run into them. And so that's one of the ways that we picked out our victims. Another way is uh, a reverse people viewer. You know, you can get these things at a little novelty store. You stick it up at a people and you can see inside the person's place. That's why it's a good idea to cover your people up all the time. Um, but you can look inside and see that someone's on home. Another way is like in these condo buildings, uh, you can see people that aren't home. If you're on the seventh floor of a building and there's a bunch of flyers stuck in the door and newspapers stacked up, there's a good there's a good chance that person isn't home because there's no back door. If they've ever left the door and, and in many days they're there, that's another telltale sign for burglars to see that you're not home. Incidentally, I tell people too that if you want to keep people out of your house, the best alarm system is a dog. And if you don't have a dog, get a sign that says "Beware of dog" and get a big dog bowl and put it out in your yard and a dog toy that's visible for people to see. Anything that shows that there is evidence of a dog living there. Burglars typically go, you know what? I'll go to the next house. Does because it matter, a dog does it matter, can't be beat. Does it matter what size dog? Because I've got four small dogs. Dude, I got a, dude, I got a Yorkie. <laughs> this little Yorkie would be a beast, man. Because she yaps and yaps and yaps. That's what you want. You want a dog that hears a noise and it's going to alert. Yeah. Little dogs are just... A, it's not the, not the bite that the, the burglar's worried about. It's the bark. You know, It's the alert that the dog gives to let you know that, hey, you know what? That's an alarm system. Anything that alerts somebody that someone's at the door, that's an alarm. Dogs are the best alarm there are. They can't be beat. Hmm. Brandon, question for Damon. 
Uh, yeah, with all your knowledge of like breaking into houses and stuff like that, have you ever thought about? I know they had a TV show at one point, mm-hmm. but where you go around like burglar proofing people's houses or tell people like, "Hey, look, you're doing this wrong," or you shouldn't be posting on Facebook that you're doing this and that. And no, you know what, uh, Brandon? Good question. Um, no, I've never thought about doing that, and I, I think that's you know that's not my lane. That's for someone else's. That's someone else's lane to get into to do that. Now, do I tell people when I see something? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, because there's you know, I can walk up to places just natural instinct and scan around. Okay, there's, there's cameras here, there's no cameras, whatever. And, and I tell people how friends or whoever that will ask me personally what it, what they could be doing better. But you're absolutely right. When someone posts on social media about, you know, we're going out of town, we're going to do this, we'll be, you know, that's not good. You know, and I know people go to go out of town, you take pictures from the vacation spots you're in. But, you know, I wouldn't leave, you know, your house completely unguarded when you do that. Um, but I do. I mean, like when I first got out of prison and, and I lived with my parents, I lived with my parents for the first two years I was out on parole. Uh, their home was very vulnerable. I mean, and, and so, you know, I did this. I put the, the beware of dog sign up. I got a big dog dish and put it out by one of the doors. You know, by, by points of entry, windows, points of entry, there's a dog toy. There's no burglar that's ever going to go into that house because of that. But I don't get out publicly on social media or anything like that. That's just not my lane to get into, man. I, I remember that show. I was thinking the same thing, Brandon, because I learned from that show. They had they had a former burglar, and he was t- you know telling you what you're doing. You go to people's houses, and one of the things is like having a ladder on the side of your house. And it's like, what are you thinking? And it's like, you're just saying, here, climb up to the second story window. Yeah. Use my ladder, yeah. please. <laughs> yeah, please use my, and that's the thing. Um, you know, I think that um, there is there is a need for that because, you know, someone that's been there can tell you how it's done. But I also want to say this. The last crime I ever committed was the summer of 2008 before the SWAT team came to get me. And since 2008, 14 years have gone by. The advancements to technology, what the stuff I used to do, I don't even know that it could be done now. Not with ring doorbells, not with the fact that every, everybody walking around has a, a, a video camera in their pocket. I mean, they have so many ways. There's cameras on the streets everywhere. It would be very hard to do the stuff that I was doing back then now. Mm. It would be very difficult to do because what the main place I was hitting was apartment complexes, condo buildings, that kind of thing. Yeah. You miss it at all? No, not at all. Man. Not the rush? You don't miss the rush? No, because I, you know, the thing about it is, is that, and I talk about this in my book, that when you get into something like that, when you get into doing it over and over again, you don't just, you're not just addicted to the drugs. You're, you're addicted to the, the ritual, the ritual right. of, of scoping a place out. Uh, you know, you're getting high while you're doing it. You're scoping the place out and you're, you know, you're actually going out and, and, and doing it, uh, you know, sometimes I'm in a police chase. Uh, I mean, just things like that. I, you know, in my book, I tell this story. My partner in crime does this about six months before the SWAT team got me. February of 2008. I can tell you the date, actually, February 27th. This crime. <laughs> so my partner in crime, Dustin, has one of these stolen cars from one of the burglaries. And we've, you know, we've both kept a car, too. But, I mean, I've, I changed the VIN number out. I've got... I've got diplomatic plates on, on this one vehicle that I have, so you can't even pull it over, right? So, but he's got a Mazda RX-8 that he's kept from one of the burglaries, and this fool goes and puts glass pack mufflers on a stolen car, right? And when he took it in to get the glass pack mufflers done, he signed this thing to get 10% off or something like that. It's like a, but he put his real address and his real name on there. 
And when they run the VIN number, these, these cars that do body work like that, they run VIN numbers through the state registration system because what do you do if you have a stolen car? You want to change the appearance of it, right? So these body shops have to run the VIN numbers through a, a state system. Well, they run this VIN number through, and ding, it's one of the cars from the Uptown Burglaries. And so he calls me up February 27th, and he's freaked out. And he's like, and he's telling me, he's like, Damon, there's a guy out in the parking lot of my apartment complex. He's wearing a cowboy hat, a sports coat, and jeans and boots. And he's got a tow truck out there with him, and they're towing my car. And I'm like, who is this guy? He said, well, he's got to be law enforcement of some kind. And I said, well, look, dude, you got to get the name of that tow truck place. And it's just like 5 o'clock in the evening, too. It's like 4 or 4.30. I said, get the name of that tow truck place off the side and call the tow truck place in a few minutes because they're driving his car off, right? He calls me back about an hour later. He goes, oh, my God. He said, yeah. He said, the guy got on the phone. He said, that's not your car. That's my car, and I'm coming to get you now. I'm coming to get you next. Wow. And I was like, where is this impound lot? The police impound. So he tells me where the police impound is. I go to his house that night, and I'm high as a kite, man. I've had to amp myself up for this, man. Well, give me the keys. Give me the keys to the vehicle. He's like, what are you going to do? I said, I'm inside the vehicle too, by the way, is this burger bag. It's, it's and, and he carries a gun. He says, he, I don't, I'm not a gun guy. I've never had guns, but he's got his burger bag in there. All his burger tools, a, a gun is in this car. And I'm like, my fingerprints are in this car, but his bag is in that car. I said, give me the keys. I'm going to the police impound. I'm getting that bag out of that car. And I'm like, because I'm banking on the fact, Jason, that, hey, this guy, is a cop. It's five o'clock. It's quitting time. He's just put this vehicle into a police impound. There's no way that he's going to mess with this thing at five. He's going home, man. That car is safe. No, I'm going in that car that night. And I'm going to get that back. So I drive to this police impound lot in a town called Haltom city. And, um, I find the impound lot. I'm driving around. I can't see the vehicle and it's got this eight foot wall around it. So I go into the neighborhood across the street and I'm looking for a house that's vacant, and I find one. This house has got a for sale sign outside. You can look in the windows. There's no furniture in there. So I, I park in front. I go around back. I break into the house. I get access to the garage, get the garage open. And now I go. I've got night vision goggles. I've got a screwdriver, and I've got the key fob to this car. And I walk, you know, two or three blocks across the street, across this highway, and I go to this police impound lot. And I've got these night vision goggles on going through the woods out there by the police impound. And I get up in a tree, and let's say the, the police impound lot looks like a baseball dime. Home plate is where the gate opens up, that the trucks come in and out with the tow trucks. And inside, all along, is that infield is just cars, cars in the police impound lot. And along the outfield wall is cars, cars. So let's say it's center field, and there's a tree out there in center field outside the police impound lot. So I climb up the tree, and I'm looking around over the police impound lot. I'm looking for this car, and then I look down below me, 20 feet below and there's the car. It's right below me. I'm like, oh, man, whoa. And so I'm like, you know, then the thought goes through my head. I can take the whole car. I'll just get the whole car. I'll just steal the whole car while I'm here. Because <laughs> why just get the bag, right? So, man, I hit the key fob, which in the middle of the night, it sounds like a sonic boom. And there's a dog over there by the guard shack. Now, the guard shack is covered up by a bunch of other cars. So I drop into this car. I close the door shut. And the dog comes. I can hear the dog around me, walking around. He can't find me. He can smell me, but he can't find me. So eventually the dog leaves. And I sit up in the car and I look around. I'm in center field, man, this police impound lot. Cars all around me. I, they've got three trucks running on rotation. I've been watching the trucks from up in the tree, too. So they've got three trucks running. And the truck just left. So I'm like, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. So I drive. I turn the car on. First thing I hear, vroom, from the glass packs. This fool put on this car, right? I'm like, oh, man. 
So I calm down. So I drive the car, and let's say I'm taking it between the second and third baseline of cars. Now I'm rounding the corner from third to home, and I stop the car right there between third and home. Home plate is where the gate is. The gate opens up like this. And I'm on that third baseline. I'm waiting for that car, that truck to pull in. It's going to be carrying that car in the home plate, right? And as soon as I see the lights from the tow truck that comes next, and I start the car up, you know, and I put it in first, (laughs) and I let this tow truck driver come through. And as soon as I see the front of the car that he is towing in at that night, I punch it, man. I punch. I drop it. I drop the hammer down, and I'm going full speed at this guy. And he, two things. One of two things going to happen. Either he's going to press the gas and go forward, or he's going to stop, and I'm dead, man. Because I'm going to T-bone this guy in a little Mazda, in a RX-8, a little Mazda RX-8, man. But he presses the gas. He presses the gas. Goes forward, man. I get to the, I get to the guard. I get to the gate, and I hang a hard right, and I'm I'm doing a donut, and I look up. I'm in the parking lot. I'm out. I made it on the police impound. I've got the car with me. I've got the burger bag in the back. I haul butt to the house I have across the street, man. I back into the garage. I clean this thing down, take the burger bag out. Everything in the car I take out, the spare tire, the tire tool, everything like that. And there's nothing in that car. I clean it down. I mean, it is the cleanest the car has ever been. There's not a fingerprint left on it. I leave the car at that house and I hop in my car and I go. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happened in the burglary spree or the uptown burglaries. I mean, you ask me, do I miss it? Hell no, I don't miss that. I don't miss. That's crazy, man. Think yeah. about that. That's Think a, about that story, man. You steal a car from the cops. That's a, that's like, I don't even like making my bed or cutting my toenails. I mean, that's a lot of work to go into dealing with that car uh, or, or oh, just man. to make sure you're covering your ass. Jill, do you have a question for Damon? Yeah, Damon, your story is so incredibly inspirational. Thank you for talking to us. But Thanks, I Joe. was curious, do you ever see yourself opening, this is all because you're a recovering addict, do you see yourself ever opening like a rehabilitation center or anything like that? Or even like a church? I think you, I'm not sure if you're religious or not, but you just have the energy. You sound like you would be an excellent pastor. Yeah, I, I'm definitely religious. And I, and I would say that being in recovery, uh, it sounds like you know a little bit about recovery. Um being in recovery, I think the best way to get through to people in recovery is you allow them to pick whatever their higher power is. I'm a Christian, so my higher power is Christ. Um, but I do know that not everybody is a Christian that's an addict. So people have to have the freedom to go around where whatever they think is going to keep them sober. And I believe in a 12-step program recovery type deal. But would I start my own program? I don't know. I, I would like, and I'm going um, – now, just because I believe the 12 steps works doesn't, I don't think the 12 steps are the only way. Let me say that too. I think that every addict has to have a program recovery. I'll say that again. Every addict has to have a program recovery. If they want to have a life where they can be useful again and live with their addiction, because you're not going to get, you'll never get well. You can get better, but you're not going to get well. You're not going to get cured of this stuff. You're going to live with this stuff. But if you have a program recovery, you have tools on how to live with it. Um, Right now in my life, I don't see myself doing that, but I do I do understand what you're saying, Jill. Yes, I think that there is a lot of uh, a positive effect I could have out there. Perhaps maybe teaming up with someone that already has one would be the best thing for me to do because I'm so busy. I'm on the road. I don't even get to sponsor anybody right now anymore, Jill. When I first got out of prison and I was sponsoring people and I'm in recovery, I've got a sponsor. I talk to my sponsor almost daily. And incidentally, my sponsor is a, is a, you know, a middle school dropout from, from Boston. He's like 72 years old, but this middle school dropout from Boston that's sober and been in program recovery for 35 years is my guru. 
Man, my, my biggest confidant in life that helps me navigate life is a, like a sixth grade dropout. But, but that's the, the power of a program recovery, man. Because people's biggest mess becomes their message. And yeah, you're right. There's definitely something more I could do. Maybe teaming up with the right person to do it. How about this? Get clean with the dean of coffee bean. <laughs> How long did it take you to come up with that one, Jason? Right off the top of my head. As soon as she asked that question, I just thought of it. I'm like, dude, I can see it now. Get clean with the dean of coffee bean. Damon, DamonWest.org, you know, and then you have these motivational videos. It's a nice little gimmick. I love it. Is, I like it. Isn't North Texas, isn't that the team that was in unnecessary roughness, Scott Bakula? That's it, man. Yeah, but wasn't well, that in the movie? Yeah. Isn't that, is that? Yeah, in the movie. So ne- the movie Necessary Roughness was filmed at the University of North Texas. They were the something Texas armadillos. Armadillos, yeah. We, we were the mean green eagles. So, yeah. but yeah, it was filmed at our school. In fact, when I went on my recruiting trip, to play quarterback there. They were like, yeah, this is, you know, this is where they filmed it. And that's a shower where Kathy, I want to take a shower in the, in the movie. So it's like, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, it was, uh, it was filmed there. Cause the same colors, green and white, straight arrow, Gennaro, you know, love that movie. <laughs> is that, is that, <laughs> you are bringing back the, that's a blast from the past, brother. Yeah. yeah. Good, I'm, I'm looking at the helmet good. and the backdrop and I'm like, God, man, that looks like the, the North. It's like, I think it was North Texas, the armadillos. I was like, you know, I know it's a movie, but I think that's where they got their inspiration from. Um, yeah. I, I, before we let you go, I also see that you're married. I'm assuming that's a picture of you and your wife in the back. I see your wedding ring. Yeah. Um, did you meet her before or after? Man, this is one of the best parts about my life. And look, whenever I go into prisons all over America, it never fails. There's always a male or female inmate that I'm talking to. Cause I go into men's women's prisons. They'll hear this stuff about my life. And you've heard all the stuff I've done in six and a half years, man. It's like, there may be four or five people in the history of incarceration that have flipped it on its ear like this, man. I'm a professor, Jason. I mean, I, I teach about this stuff. I, I go uh, corporations all over America, bring me in to motivate their, the U S army, the U S army brings me into to army bases all over America to teach the soldiers about having a coffee bean mindset. So there's so much stuff for a person that's incarcerated to look at my story and be would just give them hope, but it never fails. There's always a man or woman that comes up to me afterwards. Like, Hey, Damon, your story is amazing. But of all the things that you've been able to do in life, I want to know how you did that. Mm. They point to my wedding ring. They want to know how, because I know what it's like to lay in a prison bunk and think, man, I'll never find someone that will love me. Not with all the mistakes that I've made, all the things that I've done. No one's ever going to love me again. And if I did find someone that would love me, then their family's going to have a problem with somebody's not going to be able to digest what I've done. And it, my life is just going to be impossible to find love. Everybody think because at the core of being human, man, we just all want to belong and be loved. That's what human beings want, man. That's what we desire. We get away from that, and that's where the hate and division comes in. But at the core of being human, we all start out wanting to be loved, belong and be loved. That's I mean, like when we're a child, that's when we are the closest to God we've ever been because we just left God to come into the world. So we all want to belong and be loved, and we're always trying to get back to that. So when I got out of prison, uh, you know, my life was taken off in the speaking world. I mean, I was working really hard, putting in the work. And look, no one was paying me at first to speak. It, it, wasn't, one, it wasn't like that at all. Until Dabo and John came along, you know, there wasn't really any, any money involved in it. But I had this vision that I've got this story, and if I could find a way to tell the story, I could help other people. And along the way, I meet this woman named Kendall Romero. She's a nurse practitioner. And, um, and it's crazy, man. Kendall and I started dating. I lived in my parents' spare bedroom when Kendall met me. 
I, and I, I work at a law firm. I make a little bit above minimum wage. Um, I'm just out of prison. I'm on parole for the rest of my life. I mean, if I would have had a Tinder profile, think of how terrible my Tinder profile would have looked, man. <laughs> <laughs> Spare bedroom on parents' house, just out of prison, on parole for the rest of my life, minimum wage. This guy, you swipe, know. Swipe <laughs> right, swipe left. <laughs> swipe right, swipe left, right? But, but Kendall met me, and, and she saw something in me that I don't even know that I saw in myself at that point. Yeah, I, I tell people all the time this story about when Kendall and I were dating – we're at my parents' house, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get the, my, my first book, The Change Agent, published, and no publishers will touch my book because who is Damon West, right? Who is this guy? But there's a one publisher, Post Hill Press, that is willing to listen to me, but they want to know what my social media out- outreach is like. Literally, Kendall and I are going through my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we're writing down which date I had a post, how many likes that it got, how many views of each bit. And we're talking about 200 likes. 976 views. I mean, we're writing this down. We do this for a whole day. She sits there and does. I still say, man, I don't know what she saw in me because she was there before all this big stuff was going on. But I found my soulmate in life in Kendall. And she's got a daughter named Clara. And after about six months of dating, you know, I got to meet Clara and hang out with Clara. And then we, we got married. Get this. Kendall and I got married on May 18th, 2019. I started this podcast out talking about a different May 18th date. May 18th, 2009, I'm standing in front of a jury in Dallas. The jury sentenced me to life in prison on May 18th, 2009. May 18th, 2019, 10 years to the day that I was sentenced to life in prison, I got married for the first time. I became a husband and a stepfather. Yeah. 10 years from the day that I got sentenced to life in prison. Or as Kendall, as Kendall's told me before, you went from one life sentence to another, brother. <laughs> so, but it's much better this time. Boy, my cellmate's so much better this time. Is, is uh, Mr. Jackson still alive? Can't find the guy. And it, man, this is one of the toughest parts, one of the most common questions I get. I don't. I gave the guy the name Mr. Jackson because I'm telling the story in the South when I first get out. And in the South, I'm not going to... The only name I know this guy by is Muhammad. These guys go to prison... And they give up their government name. My government name is Damon West. And they become Muslim. They, they take on a Muslim name. The only name I know this guy by was his Muslim name of Muhammad. Like Cassius Clay goes yeah. to prison in the 1960s and he comes out Muhammad Ali. This guy's name is Muhammad. I don't know him by any other name. But when I go around and start talking and telling the story of the coffee bean, I'm thinking, man, I don't want to kill the message because of the messenger. I'm not going to go around the South and say Muhammad told me this and Muhammad told me that. It might kill the message. So I just gave him the name Mr. Jackson. But the reality is I can't find Muhammad. And I've gone to Dallas County Jail. I've asked him. Same thing. You have to have, you know, you have to have a birth date, a name, some kind of vital statistic that we can look this guy up in our system. Because we don't look up people by their, they said by their nicknames. But that's his Muslim name. It's very serious to him. But I'm hoping that he can find me at this point. Or someone in his family can find me if he's still alive. Because with Dak Prescott involved being the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, this guy was from the streets of Dallas, man. I'm hoping that it'll bring enough attention to it that he can find me. I got a hell of a story for him. Would you, if you do find him and he's alive, and even if he's deceased and you can find his family, would you give him some kind of percentage of of your earnings? Because this whole thing is because of him in the coffee bean story. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to take care of him. I think that would be another great story in itself. Like what, what could happen to this man that, you know, what did he see in me, man? Why did he do that? Why? And because he went against all the racial code in County jail to help this white guy out, but he saw something in me and without him, I'm not where I am today. So if I could find him and 
I don't know what kind of condition he's living in if he's still alive, but if I could pull him out of that and put him into a new life, wouldn't that be an amazing story too in itself? I mean, just mm-hmm. to find, I mean, it would give people that idea that you need to always treat people right and be kind to people, no matter where you are in life or where they are in life, because you never know how that comes back around, not just to you, but to other people in society. Think about that, Jason. This black Muslim man in Dallas County Jail in the summer of 2009 shares with this little white guy that he, by his own admission, he thinks I'm going to become an egg when I'm in prison because prison's the hardest place in the world. But he shares with me this story anyway, and he helps guide me through there. Every day he comes up to my cell, to my bunk, and and he picks me up like a ray of sunshine in a dark place. Without him doing that, without that act of kindness, without him being a coffee bean, I'm not where I am today. So, I mean, I, I would do whatever I can to take care of in life. Absolutely. I wouldn't even say a percentage because I would just say, let's figure out what makes your life the best. Well, I'm here to tell you, Damon, that black Muslim man that you call Mr. Jackson is now a white podcaster in Atlanta that goes by Jason Bailey, and I'll take 20%. So, <laughs> I'm just I don't think that's going to fly, Jason. <laughs> Damn, I thought I could trick you too. Gosh darn it. Uh, well, I was just in Atlanta. I was just in Atlanta two weeks ago, man. Talking to Chick Fil A's, uh, Chick Fil A's corporate headquarters, man. Really, my buddy had just got uh, Brian Malayas just got a job high up with uh, Chick Fil A in their corporate department. I wish I would have known that. I would really? have loved to meet, have met you. I would have uh, yeah. dri- driven to wherever you. Every Monday they have a devotional uh, mm. prayer thing, a devotional meeting. So I got to speak at that and um, meet some of the Chick Fil A folks at corporate. Great people, unbelievable. I mean, their campus is amazing. You ever been to the campus before? No, I didn't even know they had a campus. Brandon, you know they had a campus? Yeah, we used to we used to do irrigation up there. It's a nice oh, place. It's, it's in what, like Fairburn area? By the airport. I mean, it was right down the road from the airport, right right down the road from Hartsville. Yeah. It's kind of like Fairburn area. They oh. have access to free Chick-fil-A all the time. Yeah. Man, and that in and of itself. Look, my little stepdaughter loves Chick-fil-A. Oh, I mean, it's, I was supposed to come back with gift cards and everything, but I, I didn't. I just came back with a great story about speaking uh, to Chick-fil-A. I'm a, I'm a stepfather as well, and I have a, a stepson and a stepdaughter. And my stepdaughter, she's my daughter, but just probably same in your case. But she just turned 17. Chick-fil-A's and Starbucks. That's all we need in life, Chick-fil-A and Starbucks. Dude, that's what I look for when I'm on the road. I'm like, because I have to watch, I mean, you see me, I just got done jogging before I did this podcast, but I mean, I'm on, I'm on the road. I'm looking for Chick-fil-A's and Starbucks, man. I get the grilled chicken, uh, Chick-fil-A at Starbucks. I get the egg white bites and a, and a, nit- yeah. you ever had a nitro, nitro cold brew. You ever have one of those? Yeah, they're good. Delicious. Talk about getting jacked up. <laughs> but Jason, you said something, man, you're a, you're a step parent, man. It's one of the best roles in life I have is to get to be a stepfather, man. Whenever Whenever I was dating Kendall and before I met Clara, she told me, she said, hey, listen, Clara's, Clara's got an amazing father. She's got a great father. And, and her father loves her and she loves her father so much. And you don't have to worry about trying to fill a role to be Clara's dad because she's got a great dad. So what you need to concentrate on, Damon, is being a role model to her, uh, being a positive person in her life, make her a priority. Uh, and she said, let Clara come to you. And if you'll do all these things, be a positive influence in her life, be a role model, uh, and be her friend. She said, just try to be her friend. She said, y'all have a great relationship. And I'm going to tell you something. That coaching has been some of the best coaching I've ever had in life because 
Claire and I are, are butts. She's got it. She's got a great, her dad's amazing, man. She has this great relationship with her father and they love each other. And, and I'm on the road a, a ton. So she has this great relationship with her father and her life. And, and I'm her stepdad and being her stepdad means that, you know, I'm her friend, I'm a role model. And, and, and we were buds. She, I mean, she calls me Damon. I call her Clara, but being a stepfather is one of the most important jobs I have in life, man, because that's this, this kid that I can positively impact every day that I choose to. And, and, I tell you, man, it's it's one of the coolest things. I one of the coolest hats I get to wear in life is to be her stepdad. Well, I second that. You know, I I grew up a bastard, not knowing my biological father. Just reconnecting, actually, with one of my biological siblings, which is you know a pretty cool story. But my daughter is you know my little princess. She does no wrong. She really doesn't. She's a great, great kid. But when you're able to you know, I had stepfathers my entire life and they were kind of dicks and they very rarely taught me something of importance. But when I'm able to teach either one of my stepkids something and I see that they get it, I'm like, you know, like yesterday, you know, yesterday I just had, I had a talk with my daughter. I was like, Hey, you want to come to the gym with me and mom? And she did not want to go, even though she's an athlete, she's a cheerleader. And I said, something's up here. What's up? She didn't want to go because she had just broken up with her football boyfriend. The kids are at the same gym that we go to, um, maybe some body stuff and whatever. And I said, you never, on my watch, let anyone else dictate your day. I said, so I need you to do me a favor. I need you to come to the gym with me today, put your cell phone away, concentrate, focus, get yourself a sweat in, and just let the noise disappear. And she did. And she thanked me afterward. She said, that was fun. Thank you. So Dude, that's, that's so awesome. Jay. And I mean, just, I mean, I love talking to, to step parents, you know, because, um, and even kids that had good step parents, because that's what I, you know, I'm always looking for, for great influence, a great coach in that area, because I want to do that job the best of anything I do. I'm being a husband and stepfather. I mean, that's the stuff that I, I concentrate on in life how can I best make their lives better? And, um, man, that's cool. That's a cool story. It reminds me of the time that I taught Clara how to ride a bike because Clara was, you know, you know, you ride the bike, you fall. I mean, there was one time in particular, we were at her grandmother's house and she coming to the driveway, she ate it, man. I mean, she's splattered all out, but I'm like, come on, get up, get up. And then that little moment right there, it's been like a motivator. That was six when that happened. She was six when that happened. And still to this day, we, if something difficult comes up, I, hey, remember the time you were in Mimi's driveway and you fell down, ride your bike, and you got back up, and then you learned how to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like, man, that's cool, man. You taught your daughter a great lesson that day. Awesome. You know, the, probably the downside of being a motivational speaker like you are is, you know, these, these girls don't forget anything. So that one day you say something that's a little off color and negative, like, whoa, dad, what are you talking about? It should be a positive thing that I'm going out till one thirty in the morning because of what I'm doing. <laughs> Turn it back <laughs> yeah. on you. Yeah. They, they do remember everything. She's, <laughs> she's, she's like a, a tape recorder. Well, look, we're going to let you go, please. If there's ever another opportunity or you have something to promote or just want to kind of you know, shoot the, you know what, we'd love to have you. It was an absolute honor to have you on. Uh, the book is the locker room, damonwest.org. Uh, fantastic story, well told, and just a great human being doing a lot of good in the world. So thank you so much for sharing. Guys, I really appreciate it. Jill, everybody, thanks a lot. And your questions were, were, were spot on. It was really 
one of those podcasts that kind of took me out of my comfort zone a little bit to answer some of the questions. And I like that because growth takes place outside your comfort zone. And I tell everybody all the time, again, if I could do it, you could do it. Be a coffee bean. That's well, that's, that's, what, that's why this podcast is better than most. And make sure you let people know that, Damon. You know, you just tell I sure them. will. <laughs> I'll tell them, Jason. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Damon. Thanks a lot, y'all. Thanks for the time you. today. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye.